Hi, good evening. Um, thanks so much for coming and joining us tonight on this very dark and cold Monday. Um, I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research officer at the Kuwait program here at LSE. Um, and more importantly, we have with us tonight Lulal Khatar, um, and she's going to speak to us about education reform in Qatar. So she's going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have a question and answer session um, afterwards. So can I also ask that everyone silence their phones, um, just so we, we don't have any interference. And also, um, just to let you know, if you have any friends who've missed the event, it is being recorded. So um, that'll be available to you later. Um, so Lova is a policy analyst, DPhil candidate at the University of Oxford, and the Arabic content lead at Oxford Gulf and Arabian Peninsula Studies Forum. Previously, she worked at Rand Qatar Policy Institute as a research project manager and at Qatar Tourism Authority as pl planning and quality director. And as many of you probably know, she's recently been named a spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Qatar. Um, so we have a very a far more um, qualified person than I to speak, so we'll go ahead and, and let her get started. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Hello, uh, good evening everyone, uh, ladies, gentlemen, um, friends, colleagues, I see many of you here, thank you so much. I'm most grateful to uh, Dr. Fia for her kind invitation. Um, it's an honor to be here speaking to you at um, LSE. So um, as Dr. Fria mentioned, um, I've been named last week only as the spokesperson of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, is, it, is it this way or that way? Yeah, yeah? sure. Um, this event, however, was programmed prior to uh, this appointment. Uh, therefore, any opinions, views expressed today <laughs> represent me, don't represent the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, although that said, I'm not sure to what extent Ministry of Foreign Affairs would be interested in education reform or, you know, policy borrowing, especially K through 12 education. Um, yet, I, I thought I should make this disclaimer. Um, so my topic today is on policy borrowing and Qatar's K through 12 education reform. Um, the talk will be two parts. Does this work this way or that way? That way. So the first part will be the case study, a case study on the reform that took place in Qatar early 2000. Um, and then in the second part, uh, I'll speak a little bit about policy borrowing and the role of management consulting in policy formation. Now, um, the logical sequence could have been, you know, to start with the theory and then end with the case study. But I thought, let me give some context, uh, some substance to the arguments I intend to make for the second part. Um, so um, I'm not sure how many of you have heard of uh, education for a new era in Qatar, the independent schools, the, some of you, I, yeah, sure. So um, it's, let me give a little bit of background, basically historical background about education in, in Qatar. Modern education in Qatar uh, started in the late 40s, early 50s. Prior to that, there was the sort of traditional form of, of education, uh, the Katatib, where uh, people used to study the um, uh, Islamic studies, Arabic studies, uh, basic math, and so on and so forth. 
but then the first modern boys' school was uh, established in the uh, 1940s, late 1940s, and then two years after the first uh, uh, girls' school was, was established. Um, I feel more comfortable standing, so let me do that. Um, but then the development of education in Qatar took its course just like the rest of the GCC up until the 90s. In the 90s, as you can see, 1990, 1996, 1997, there have been some reform attempts. Um, all of them were not fully realized, mainly due to uh, uh, budget constraints. And these were documented by Dr. Al-Kabesi, the former uh, president of Qatar University. Courtney and I had a, a little discussion about his thesis, I believe in Durham University, and I, I think it's, it's available. Um, so he documented these, these attempts, uh, not in the thesis though, in, in, in a series of, of articles. He did his thesis late 70s, I believe. So in 1999, as I was doing my research, I came across a fourth attempt of education reform. Um, and I did uh, document that um, attempt in, in, in this book. And yes, you may consider this marketing for the book. <laughs> so this book is published by Palgrave. Only last year, it's about policy making in Qatar, um, and it's called policy making in a, trans in a transformative state, the case of Qatar. Um, so I did document that attempt here. Only one year after endorsing that uh, reform um, strategy, it was a 10-year strategy, um, an American think tank was invited to Qatar in 2001, and they started their own uh, research to prescribe a remedy, if you wish, for the um, education system in Qatar. When I compared the two documents, uh, I was surprised to find that they had exactly the same assessment. They have um, uh, identified the same weaknesses in the Qatari education system back then. Uh, yet, it was the uh, study that was uh, done by the American think tank that was endorsed later on and implemented. This, of course, tells you a little bit about the power structures and, and knowledge production that, that we have in our region. And I'm going to allude to that when I talk about the consultant-client relationship, which is pretty much a power relation. Um, and I see a friend here smiling and um, because he's doing uh, consulting himself. So I, I, I guess uh, maybe in the q and I, I, I can uh, uh, ask him a question about that. Um, so uh, these are the reform <laughs> attempts. The point is uh, the 1990s was full of reform attempts. Some of them were partial. Some of them were uh, more holistic. Um, so education for a new era, as I mentioned, the study started 2001. The implementation started in 2002 uh, by establishing a new entity called the Supreme Education Council. I, I failed to mention uh, earlier that the oldest ministry in Qatar is the Ministry of Education. It was established in 1957-1958 as the oldest bureaucracy in the state of Qatar, and this is very important. So what happened with the reform here in 2002, with the establishment of the Supreme Education Council, is creating a new parallel system. And for the first time, in the same policy sphere in Qatar, we had two parallel systems operating at the same time. Now, 
This happened also in, in the area of health and in other areas and in, in policies and in, in policy formation in Qatar. Uh, when I asked the consultants who were involved in this reform and other uh, reform attempts as well, they told me that the rationale behind uh, creating an alternative entity uh, was to bypass the old bureaucracy uh, and its stagnation, if you wish, um, and create more effective and efficient um, entities. Now, this is hardly unique to Qatar because it was replicated in other countries, and I see some um, uh, colleagues here from other um, GCC countries who could possibly comment on that as well. So this was replicated. Now, the common denominator here is the consultants. And consultants, according to many studies today, are considered the main policy diffusers globally. Um, so Supreme Education Council, and then in 2004, the first cohort of uh, the independent schools, and these are the reformed schools, uh, was, uh, or, uh, was announced. Uh, and then from 2004 until 2011, they started converting the old schools uh, to, uh, to become independent schools, like reformed schools. Uh, until we reached the year 2011, the entire system shifted to the uh, <coughs> Supreme Education Council. In other words, the Ministry of Education became obsolete in that sense because they had uh, nothing to manage. They had no schools to manage. So what you would imagine in this case is that the Ministry of Education would be dismantled because the Supreme Education Council took over completely. Surprise, surprise, in 2013 what happened was the opposite. The Supreme Education Council was dismantled and the Ministry of Education came back. You're asking about the reason, multiple reasons. Some of them could be found, if you wish, in the literature about historical new institutionalism. Sometimes we make basic rational, I would say naive assumptions that the old bureaucracies just vanish. They just disappear. They don't. Um, and what we saw, not only in education, in health, uh, the Supreme um, Family Council was dismantled as well, Supreme Health Council was dismantled as well, and they were all replaced by the old bureaucracies. Now, I leave it up to you to draw parallels with what we're seeing in our region now, uh, domestically in some of the countries who are creating new entities, thinking that those new entities would replace the old bureaucracies. Are we going to see the same uh, thing 10 years down the road, the old bureaucracy lashing back? This is possible. Um, and then, yeah. So I did mention the reform several times, but what is the reform? Uh, the reform aimed at creating an, an environment for learning, and, and uh, a creative environment for learning in the public schooling system, uh, also to graduate students who can join high-ranking universities. The idea of the education city in Qatar, if you heard about Georgetown Qatar, Carnegie Mellon Qatar, Texas A&M Qatar, all of these, the plan was there since the late 1990s. And that's why prior to the reform, um, we, have, we had another uh, reform attempt called the scientific schools. The very aim of the scientific schools was to graduate students who were capable to join Georgetown, Cornell, Texas A&M, etc. Uh, how is the system, okay, it's probably the, as you can see, the font is just uh, different formats. Um, the, um, the mechanism uh, of, of, 
of that reform and how it, should, it was expected to achieve its goals was to uh, move from, as you can see, from this hierarchical, uh, very centralized system, the Ministry of Education, into a more decentralized system. Um, and it, was, it is pretty much a free market model. So the Supreme Education Council was not exactly another Ministry of Education. It was just a regulator, just like what you would have in any capitalist economy, like a regulator. And then uh, the schools would work independently from that regulator. But they are, of course, held accountable to it. And the four principles that are mentioned, I thought I brought the book, I didn't, but um, the book itself by the, by the American think tank is is available, it's called Education for New Era. You can download it online, but that's another book published by them. I'm, I'm gonna talk about it a little bit uh, in, a, in a minute. Um, so the four principles of those schools were autonomy, accountability, variety, and choice. And the idea of choice, uh, for those who are familiar with education policies, uh, it, it has become a trend since the 1990s that parents should have the choice. Um, instead of, of um, let's say, um, uh, forcing them to go to certain public schools, what you do is you give them vouchers or you give them the option to choose whatever schools they think are uh, good for their kids. So that was the idea. Um, that's not important. Is this model new? It's not. It's just adopted from the charter system. How many of you is familiar... Um, uh, with the charter system? Yeah. It's interesting. Only people from the region, <laughs> from the Arab region, uh, knows about it, even though the idea itself was generated in the U.S. Uh, you have charter uh, schools here in the U.K. There are some, uh, there are many, actually, in the U.S. and elsewhere as well. So charter schools are schools of choice that are funded by public money but are self-governed, operating outside the traditional system of public school <coughs> governance under a charter. The problem, I would say the problem, with this model is that it's not a pedagogical model. It's an economic model. It was originally uh, uh, theorized uh, uh, about by economists, uh, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill talked about it, but the idea itself crystallized with uh, the renowned Milton Friedman and, and those familiar with the Chicago School of Economics would, would, would guess uh, the kind of, of recommendations he has put forward. So in an article in 1955, um, he was the first person to coin the term voucher system and voucher schools. And the idea is that you would have government vouchers. Schools are profit-making entities operating in a free market, so pure uh, economic model, uh, the government preserves the game's conditions, but does not administrate. This is very important. Uh, this is just a, co a quote to entertain you by uh, Mill uh, on liberty. If the government would make up its mind to require for every child a good education, it might save itself providing one. And he goes on explaining the idea. Um, I did mention the movement for choice. So the movement for choice sort of flourished in the 1990s in the US. Um, and that was part of a context. So there was a, a general context in the policy scene, economically, culturally, etc. 
Uh, from the 1980s, it seemed like the private sector was taking over. The uh, public sector uh, was not doing so well. People start, started losing faith in, in, in the public uh, system and in government in general. Uh, so that was the general rhetoric. So it was only logical that people would start calling for more um, of a private uh, sector-like schooling system. And this is the essence of the uh, movement for choice. Uh, and this is very important. This is targeted, this system is targeted at poor students and minorities. A peak moment for that, um, for that movement was the uh, No Child Left Behind Act, which was signed by uh, President George Bush. Again, let us remember that this was targeting minorities and as poor students, basically students with limited resources. Um, I did mention that in 2001, the think tank came to Qatar. And in 2001, the act was endorsed by the American president, the No Child Left Behind Act. Now let's do a comparison. I mean, the, the No Child Left Behind Act was just logical with the historical sequence uh, of events, if you wish, in the US and with the, with the culture and everything. So how did the scene look like in Qatar back then? So in the US, as I said, there was a sense, a general culture of discrediting the government and trusting the civil society, trusting the private sector. In Qatar, it was exactly the opposite. It was actually the government leading the reform. It was the people relying on the government to provide the services. So that's one point to think about. In the US, you have a decentralized model. If you remember, the essence of the charter system is decentralization. You as a government, you don't bother about the daily administration and everything. You just care about the results. It's a result-based system. So it makes sense that it would be decentralized, as you can see. And as a federal system in the US, the, the, the general culture of governance is all about decentralization. In Qatar, is, it's just the opposite. It's hierarchical. It's very controlled. So for the, to me, for the consultants to come up with this idea of decentralization, it's like a you know, free market-like uh, uh, model, it's exactly like trying to create an island of, of uh, neoliberalism in an ocean of non-neoliberalism, let's say. Let's put it this way. So again, you need to think about the wider context and not only the specific policy you're recommending. Because for the public schools, they realized later on in the implementation phase that there were many legal implications to, for example, opening the, the contracting process to people from outside Qatar to compete over contracts in Qatar to run Qatari public schools by pu Qatari public money. So there were many implications that go behind the education system itself that were not thought of. Um, and then one of the other differences, I would say, strong free market culture. It's, it's a culture. And when I say culture, I'm talking about the institutional culture. While in Qatar, it's mainly the government who's offering the services. So again, that's another main difference. In Qatar, in 2004, when they announced the first cohort, it was only 
a little bit over 200 public schools that the Ministry of Education ha had to run. Now, in the U.S., back in 2001 or 2004, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that the number was a little bit higher than 200 schools. Now, there is a reason why you have a decentralized model. You have a decentralized model to reduce the bureaucracy. But then when you have a model or, or a magnitude or, or a system that is small in size, creating decentralization by experience is proven to create more bureaucracy. Because what you do instead of giving orders, you leave 200 different schools you know, to do whatever they want to do, and then you have to follow up, and then you have to put quality assurance layers in place, and you have to put quality assurance um, uh, indicators in place. So you end up with more administrative work and more bureaucracy. And in my field work, surveying almost 20 <coughs> schools, this is proven. It's, it's not, and this is one of the main complaints that most schools had, and the SEC itself, the Supreme Education Council, had. So all these factors and all these differences, um, by mentioning these, I'm, I'm trying to highlight the question of policy borrowing. The fact that a policy works in a certain context does not necessarily mean that if you borrow the policy, it would work in the new context. And I'll talk a little bit more about this. But then I would also want to question whether this very model actually works well in the U.S. itself. Because the, the same think tank produced this book in the same year, in 2001, about the voucher system and about uh, the charter system. And there is a common researcher, a common author between the two books. The one report that was done for Qatar and this report that was done for the U.S. And what this book, done for the U.S., says is that there is no empirical evidence that voucher system or charter system is better off than the normal public schools in the US. But then, I forgot the book, if you look at the other report done for Qatar, they're saying that it is only ideal for Qatar to adopt the charter system because it has worked perfectly in other contexts. So I would question both whether this very system worked in the original context and I would question the very concept of policy borrowing when it happens without realizing the consequences of, of this uh, borrowing. Um, this is a logic model, basically. Logic model becomes very handy when it comes to analyzing policies. Um, and the idea is that you look at any policy, any program, any situation, and you spell it out as a series of cause-effect relationships. This is a very high-level logic model, but if you do the actual thing, it'll be much more uh, detailed than this. But then if you look at the education reform that happened in Qatar and try to map it out as, as, as processes, as cause-effect relationships, you would end up with something pretty much like this model. So you're talking about operators and not educators, because the essence is economic. The method itself is not important. The method you use in teaching, for example, is not important, as long as it's going to produce a good output. And the good output is expected to attract more students, and the more students will make more profit. And if you have more profit, 
then you can sustain your business. We're going to question this um, in a minute. So if you look at the basic model, the traditional model, it's simple. It's educators focusing only, not on the administration, not on the economics, focusing only on the pedagogy to get good outputs. Now, what's wrong with this model? Is, do you have any problem with this model? This one? Oh, sorry. You're perfectly fine with it? Sure. Now, the argument that any uh, sort of uh, rational choice theorist would make is that, what's the problem? I mean, as long as I'm going to get good output, even if this good output is a byproduct of the main process, that's fine. I'm getting a good output. Well, this is the problem. This is the problem. I cannot slip. <laughs> so, oh, that, yeah, I think I figured it out. Uh, but then how do I click? So. Oh, is, is there the actual left? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I did the same thing. Okay. Not my day. So, yeah. The problem is to maximize the benefits... There is no one path to do that. So you can go around the good outputs and still get more profits and more students. How do you do that? You do it two ways. To be more cost effective, instead of hiring a teacher for, I'm just making up the number, the number 10,000 uh, whatever pounds, or, you hire a teacher for, like, let's say, 5,000 pounds. You're being more cost-effective, you're saving more money. Did this happen in reality? Is just, am I just theorizing around this? It happened. The other way is gaming the system. And whenever you have a, a, a result-based system, it's almost always expected that you'd have gaming the system. And um, uh, Diane Ravitch, I believe, is, is an American educator um, who served also uh, in the, um, um, as an assistant to the Secretary of Education in the U.S., published two books on that, uh, talking about the um, sort of negatives of the, um, the test-based uh, assessments or systems, um, saying that this actually destroyed the American education system. The point is, gaming the system is possible. So if the uh, ministry is only, uh, uh, only cares about your results, you can come and tell me, well, look at my students. They did very well. But are they doing very well? There is one example here called the Atlanta Public Schools. Uh, that is the performance management system, the balanced scorecard. Uh, is it Kaplan and Norton? And, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I believe it was Kaplan who, who, who wrote a book about this very experience, celebrating this experience in a book, saying, look at this school. They adopted my system, the balanced court system, the test, uh, the, the, this sort of test-based system, uh, and they're doing very well. But then he had to apologize for that because he discovered, everyone discovered, the public opinion, that they were forging the results. Uh, so... Again, this is something to, to bear in mind and think about. That was the Qatar education reform system. I'm going to move to the second part, which is very much intertwined with the, with the first 
case study, and that is the policy borrowing and the role of management consulting. Um, some good material on, on the topic, I think. So the Wisconsin case study overview. One of the major issues I've always had is that whenever a policy borrowing happens between the West and let's say our region and Arab Islamic uh, or Muslim region, the question always revolves around one point. And what's that point? It's identity. As if policy borrowing is reduced to the question of identity. What I would like to argue is that there's much more technicality in the question of policy borrowing until we get to the question of identity. And even the way we define culture, we, defined it in a in a, we define it in a very narrowed way, while we should define it in a more um, sort of holistic way, including the institutional culture. When I saw this case study, the Wisconsin case study, I was like, bingo, this is it. This talks about policy borrowing between the UK, the US, very similar, similar cultures, right? And yet, in the 80s, by the way, so Reagan and Thatcher, most of those policies, according to studies, have actually failed due to technical reasons, cultural reasons, but not exactly identity-related. Uh, let me explain about this, the Wisconsin case study. So this case study uh, looks at policy borrowing, a specific incident in the 1980s. So the UK in the 1980s, under Thatcher's leadership, borrowed many policies from the USA under Reagan. The Wisconsin case study looks in details at the child support policy in the case of parents' divorce. UK moved from welfare policies to neoliberal policies, as you know. This particular program failed, despite these similarities. Same Western culture, same English language. Now, some Brits might... Uh, object to that. They don't consider American English as English, but who am I to judge with my Arabic English? So, so same culture, same language, same everything. Like-minded politicians, this is very important. And yet, the policy failed. So what is that policy? This is it. Child Support Agency is a regulator in the US, uh, in, the case of the, um, in the case of Wisconsin. They used to look after the process of ensuring that kids of divorced or separated parents would get the um, financial allocation that they should get. So, as you know, in the UK, um, there was this sense of we need to you know, embrace new policies, etc. So they were pretty much borrowing many of their policies without necessarily thinking about the particular policies. And this is one thing in the literature about policy borrowing, that not every sort of successful country would be successful in every single policy. Yet we tend to uh, borrow from countries that we think are more developed. Well, they might be more developed economically, but in particular policies, they might not be doing very well, or that policy might be working very well for them, but won't work well for us. So what happened when um, they moved this policy to the UK, um, this is, by the way, a study, if you want to look it up, by Marsh and Dolowitz. It's, it's an excellent one. What they did was 
to come up to strip off uh, most of the uh, policy uh, failure examples of the particularities, and they came up with uh, a general model of why policy uh, uh, fails or policy borrowing fails, and they identified around uh, seven reasons for that. So they talked about the uninformed, uh, uninformed transfer, why that program existed in the, in the U.S. So in the original context, historically in the U.S., the only reason for this regulator to step in was to say instead of, um, well, most of the parents uh, supporting their kids were single mothers and not single fa fathers, and most of them used to receive uh, direct money, uh, and this prevented them from um, sort of working. They would rely more on the government, etc. And the government had a vision of integrating those single mothers in the labor market. So when they said, okay, let's have a regulator, let's encourage and put incentives in place for those single mothers to work, and we will help them, we will train them, we will do everything for them so that they work and they can support their own kids. So that regulator was not a money collector regulator, that agency in the U.S. Uh, it was connected with many other agencies and many other uh, systems. In the U.K., however, this motivation did not exist. This very reason did not exist. The only reason they adopted that policy, they moved from the welfare to the sort of um, uh, neoliberal policy, was mostly ideological reasons, without having um, actual reasons on the ground. Incomplete transfer is the second reason. Missing institutions like the court system. So how would you enforce that system? How would you, you do, would you make parents actually pay for their kids? In the US, they had a very good court system that had a history of, and they're very trained to, to deal with these um, um, issues, while in the UK, they created this new entity without connecting it to any judicial system, and they did not have the right legal infrastructure in place. So this is incomplete transfer. You just transfer one element of the system and forget about the others. Inappropriate transfer, different motivations. In the, in the, in the US, it was supporting kids. In the UK, it was maximizing the profit. And in one of the doc documentations that uh, do documentation that was found about that specific incident in the in the UK, they found out that whenever um, there is a parent who doesn't want to pay, that new uh, regulator would not even bother with those parents because they thought that they would be spending so much money, so much time, just tracing them down. So what they did was focusing on those parents who were already paying, which was, of course, unfair and, and created all sorts of problems. So the idea here is that in policy borrowing, you often come across either uninformed transfer, and I would say this was the case with the education reform, uh, education new era in Qatar, incomplete transfer, and then inappropriate tra uh, transfer. The essential components, um, any policy has its essential component, the active ingredient. Think of it as a medicine. Any medicine would have one or two active ingredients. The rest of it would be color, would be uh, uh, taste, would be preservation, would be other ingredients. If you take out the active ingredients, 
It, this medicine will look the same, will taste the same, will, will smell the same, but it will not have the same effect. Likewise in policies. Now the problem is, in medicine, in chemistry, it's very easy to find the causality. This ingre ingredient causes that. In social sciences, in policies, it's almost impossible. You have too many factors. So what policy borrowers tend to do is that they stabilize all the other factors, and then they say, okay, so we're going to just, you know, rely on the correlation and hope and maybe pray that this policy that we're moving would work for us. That's why it's very important. Richard Rose, I'm not sure if I mention him here. Yeah, so Richard Rose uh, wrote about this, uh, and he made a distinction between uh, lesson drawing and policy borrowing, and we can talk about that. And he talked about what he called the wicked context. Um, normally, we deal with context as a very, just like in the rational model, uh, very simple, very straightforward, while the context could be very much, very complicated, very sophisticated. Policy borrowing and policy learning. Let me ask you a question here. Do you think there is a distinction? And, and this is an actual question. <laughs> is there a difference between both? You think that there is a difference? Do, do you? Anything who thinks there is a difference, please raise your hand. Also to wake you up. <laughs> okay. So, can I pick on you, Adil? Is, is this okay? Or, <laughs> please. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, I mean, do you want to? I don't know. I make an assumption that lesson um, learning is with hindsight, whereas policy borrowing is something that you can take. Yeah, sure. So, th that's one point, definitely. Um, the, the main distinction uh, also would be is that in policy, policy borrowing does not necessarily involve policy learning. You just copycat, you just move, you just borrow. You don't necessarily understand the policy itself, how it works exactly. Policy learning, on the other hand, uh, does not necessarily mean that you're going to borrow the policy. So I can learn from other countries' mistakes not to borrow that specific policy. So this is policy learning, but not policy borrowing. Now this might sound like a very basic distinction, yet you will be surprised that most consultants don't make this distinction. Why is this important? For several uh, reasons. Um, I'll, get, I'll just give you one example. Uh, going back to the education policies. Uh, most, mostly consultants would do the following. If they're asked, let's say, uh, Courtney, Courtney, for example, um, um, hires me to do a study. I'm a consultant. So what I would do is to scan the landscape. What are the best performing countries in terms of education? I look at the indicators, and then I find out that it is actually South Korea and Finland, right? Okay. So I decide to go for... South Korea, and study the South Korean model. But then let's say, Maryam here, for example, is again commissioned by Courtney for some reason. You're commissioning two people. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly, I think so. <laughs> so Maryam ends up with, you know, the, Finland, the Finnish example, with Finland. I study South Korea, and I start asking the question, what is it that the South Koreans do Right, and as I start noting this down. So what they do, 
is that uh, they have like more schooling hours, more homework, more discipline. This is it. This is the remedy. I go back to Courtney. Courtney, this is the best solution for you, believe me. Right, now I want the money, of course. And then Maryam studies Finland. And you know what she finds out? She finds out that actually in Finland, they have more, li more liberty in, in the classroom. They have less homework. They have less schooling hours. She notes these points down. And then she presents the results to Courtney. Now, if I were in Courtney's place, I wouldn't give me or give Mariam any money <laughs> because I would think this is insane. These are very different recommendations. Yet, it works for South Korea, it works for Finland, right? When you as a consultant don't realize the difference, when you as a decision maker, as a client, don't realize the difference, when you're not trained to ask the right questions, this is very important, and the relationship between the client and the consultant is important. As a client, you have to ask the right questions. You have to know the topic you're talking about. Even if you're hiring consultants, you have to manage the consultants. So, again, that's why we need to draw this distinction between policy learning, policy um, borrowing. And this is another example, another case study. Um, those of you working on, on education policies might be familiar with this report by one of the top uh, five consultancies, uh, and it is um, uh, how the world's most improved school systems keep getting better. This particular study went viral. Everyone was reading it. All schools, or ministries of education, they were like, yes, this is it. These are the recommendations that we should implement. But then, this scholar from the University of Edinburgh, and others of course, decided to do a study about the study. And to ask the mythological questions that you would ask whenever you receive an academic paper. And this is another point, that normally consult uh, like consultancies work don't go through the same rigorous uh, mythological standards. That's another point, though. So what did this scholar find? Many things, including, he's saying, its conclusions. Its conclusions rest on a flawed methodology, which, among other things, relies on policymakers on top-down accounts of their policies and fails to compare improving school systems with non-improving ones. Imagine. So they did exactly the same. What they did is they went to the schools it's like me going, again, I'm, I'm picking on you, Courtney, sorry. I think that Courtney is, uh, Courtney is an excellent uh, scholar, and, and you are. So I would like to be like her. So what I do is that I spend time, like two weeks with Courtney. So I observe what she does in the morning, what breakfast she has, how many hours she reads, how many hours she exercises, uh, whether she goes to cinema or not, and all of these things. Now, do you think that all these details really matter? I mean, whether I have apple juice in the morning or orange juice? But this is exactly what most consultancies do. They go to, to, to schools and they just observe. But then they don't, they ask the question of what? They never ask the question of why. Why is this effective? It's never about the causes. 
the causality is not there anyhow. So by doing so, that, that was very misleading because they focused on the improving schools and they left the other schools. What if the other schools were doing exactly the same? Do we know? We don't know. Now, it could be that the points that this study identified uh, are correct, but it's also possible that they're not. So, again, it's about the methodology and what kind of methodology is being used. And just three slides and I'll conclude. I thought I would just put the, this slide here because uh, this is my own experience with uh, consulting and management consulting. Uh, with my first job in the oil and gas, I looked up at consultants. So I had the chance, the first project ever was uh, with a consulting company looking at one of the oil and gas companies' processes to re-engineer the processes, put a management system in place, the indicators. I literally used to imitate those consultants, literally. Like everything they say, everything they do, they know better, and so on and so forth. Until I moved to the, I call it the disenchantment phase. This is when I worked for one of them. And I realized that they're just people, very smart people, very hardworking people, but they're people. And oftentimes they are as puzzled as we are. <laughs> Believe me. So that was the disenchantment phase. And then I moved, I, I would situate this very session under the analysis phase. And this moves me to the literature around management consulting. I think we can classify it into four categories. One is knowledge produced by consultants for their own consumption. That is manuals, <coughs> templates, etc. Two, knowledge produced by consultants for their clients. So that would be strategies, plans, etc. Three, knowledge produced by management gurus for public consumption. And you're, you must be familiar with these, you know, these books and these um, things like about uh, things like um, you know best practices and you know the best habits and things like that for successful people and so on and so forth. I'll tell you what the problem is with, with this particular uh, genre, if you wish. Um, I'll talk about it in a minute. And then finally, there is the knowledge produced by academics analyzing management consultancies. This is very important. And the literature I'm telling you about this on this topic is very scarce. So what's the problem with some of the knowledge produced by consultancies and by consultants, especially the gurus? is the following. It's non-codified body of knowledge. It's not documented, and hence it's not verified. It mainly depends on verbal exchange and communication, and sometimes behavior, sometimes uh, observation. Uh, so how can we verify this kind of knowledge? How can we test it? How can we put it under uh, sort of academic scrutiny and, and proper mythological uh, measures? and standards. The second point is that normally uh, don't get through external assessment. So whatever the consultancies, if, if any scholar would, would submit, submit a paper, they would uh, go through a, a process of peer review, etc., by external assessors. This does not happen. Of course, I should say here that big consultancies uh, have their own quality assurance processes and research units, etc. But again, this is all internal. So objectivity here is something to think about. Um, three, in general, the written work produced by consultants 
does not go through the same rigorous academic standards. I, I believe I mentioned that already. Um, some of the challenges that management uh, consultancies create, uh, one is losing institutional memory and knowledge accumulation. This is very important. In every uh, single uh, contract with consultancies, there is almost always a section uh, on knowledge transfer. So they theorize about this, knowledge transfer. But in reality, uh, it almost never happens. Because the consultants leave, who would bother to read all these documents? Many of the people who dealt with the consultants and the company itself leave or you know, rotate or whatever. Um, so we end up with a very poor institutional memory. And that's why I've seen a situation where the same institution um, had undergone three different strategies within two years. That's because the management changed and the new management did not know about the old management uh, and, and the plans they had in place and so on and so forth. Knowledge accumulation, institutional memory is very important and unfortunately uh, it's easy to lose that uh, while you rely heavily on, on consultants and subcontractors in, in general. The second challenge I think is unique to the GCC, and my colleagues here from the GCC can perhaps uh, correct me on that. I think it creates a way around sustainable human development. Because, you know, who, who would bother about developing people from scratch, right? Let's get the experienced people, let's get the consultants, let's get the people who know what they're doing. And then those juniors, will, you know, will get the training, but they never get the training, I'm telling you, right? So I think that this is a way, currently, the way we're heavily in the GCC, relying on subcontractors in general, this has become a, a way around sustainable and true human development. With that note, I should conclude. Uh, I think I've taken so much time, so apologies about that. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, not only the description of what happened in Qatar, but also this idea of a, a model of policy borrowing versus policy learning. Um, and also, as, as a native of Atlanta, I was interested to learn about the abysmal record of our public schools. So uh, yeah. finally understand why my parents moved me out of that. So yeah, um, so a lot, a lot, a lot to discuss. Um, so anyway, um, now we'll open it up to questions and answers. Um, so we just ask that you, you ask a brief question, not give a, a separate talk. Um, and um, also we don't have a roving microphone, so you might have to speak up um, so we can hear you and so the recording will catch it. Um, so yeah, who wants to start? Hi, uh, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for your talk. Uh, I grew up in Qatar, um, and I'm wondering why there is a reliance on Western management consulting consultancies in the region, not just in education, but healthcare and you know, and how local knowledge production can replace the reliance on, on that and reach government. Yeah, sure. Shall I just answer? You're going to yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that the reliance, uh, according at least to statistics, even though. Uh, many of them might not be that accurate. The reliance on management consultancies is a global trend. 
we see it more in the GCC. Uh, this is a perception. Uh, but according to numbers, it's, it is actually China who's uh, now on the rise more than the GCC. And most, the, the biggest market for management consultancies is still the U.S., uh, there is no competition. Majority of management consultancies do their big contracts in the U.S. and, and not in the GCC. Um, and the second question about was about like sort of homegrown knowledge. Like, uh, I think that all of the GCC countries, including Qatar, started in the sense that uh, you know we have now good um, education offerings, especially in terms of post-secondary education offerings, and this is definitely the starting point. Uh, now, there is a common theme that we often see in, in, uh, in studies written in Arabic about the labor market and, and, and education. They always pose the question is why there is a gap between our education output and the uh, labor market needs. I argue against that. I don't think that there is a gap. The quality of our graduates is excellent. It's just because we are not integrating them well in the market itself. Uh, so if there's a gap, it's not on the education side, it's on the uh, labor market side uh, to have a better, uh, a better integration. Um, not sure if this answers the question. Um, yeah. Also in terms of like, policy making, having these graduates move into government, for example, what sort of role they can play? The graduate. Yeah, exactly. The, the graduate. Uh, I, thi I think... Well, I believe that most of the government sector is, is nationalized in, in most GCC countries, so they are playing a role. Um, it's just this culture of, again, reliance on outsourcing and, and, and subcontracting. Um, part of it is, is a misconception, again, uh, that um, it is more effective and uh, even more cost-effective, even though in the long run I don't think it's more cost-effective. So it's just a matter of perception. But the, the, the public sector is, is almost 100% uh, nationalized, yes. Hi. Um, yeah, so I, I actually was also born and raised in Doha. So my, my question has more to do with the methodology part. I really enjoyed your critique on the lack of methodology in a lot of the uh, consultancy literature. Um, so my question is, why did it take so long for Qatar to finally realize what was going on. Surely, by probably 2010, um, there was a growing realization before even the full, the, like the educational landscape had fully transformed into the independent school system. Um, so why did it take so long? And what were the factors at play that were um, trying to sort of uh, delay any real education reform? Uh, second question is, uh, I'm curious to know if there was any form of uh, phasing out and to do an evaluation while the implementation process was ongoing? Like, did they commission any like randomized control trials in, in the 2004 period to just evaluate those 12 schools in the beginning? And then on that basis to sort of do like trial and error analysis? Yeah, I'll start with the second point. I think, yes, I, I to totally agree. They should have started with that, just to run some sort of a pilot, let's say. Um, the original idea was that, but I believe that uh, there was a decision just to move things forward and, and so on and so forth. So, but yeah, definitely that should be, should have been the the sort of ideal scenario to have a pilot first and then to roll out the the, the system like fully. Going back to your first question, um, was it about um, like? Uh, 
starting to revise uh, as soon as 2010, you'll be surprised. Revisions started as soon as 2006. And many changes, I didn't have the chance uh, to, to allude to that, but uh, many of the changes, just to give you one example. So the essence of the new model, the independent, the independent school, the charter system, was the profit-making, isn't it? As soon as 2006, they realized that this is not possible. They actually removed the, the profit-making element. And if I may just connect this to the theory about, remember, the essential components and the active ingredient, this is what happens when you borrow policy and don't learn. Because the essence of the original model and the only reason why it should have worked in the, in the American context is the profit-making element. But then you realize that this element does not work very well with your culture, so you remove it. Fair enough. At that point, you should have realized that the model itself is just empty, right? But then what happens is that they continued doing everything else same mechanisms, same procedures, same bureaucracy, etc., until they realized uh, that, and they kept changing and revising uh, every year, until they reached 2012 uh, uh, when they realized, uh, you know, as we say, khalas. So that was a, a complete reverse of, of the entire policy. Yes. Um, I just wondered how you saw, you mentioned the, kind of the Western universities that have bases in Education City, like, like UCL as well, well and Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. I just wondered how you saw that. Um, do you see that as kind of like another form of outsourcing education, or do you see that as a way to kind of develop education in the Just off the top of my head right now, because I haven't had like the chance to, or haven't done any, any real study on that, on post-secondary education. Um, yet my personal impression, um, as a Qatari, is that it, it actually created a, a very good culture for research and, and academia. Uh, prior to, to Education City and prior to another entity called Qatar National Research Fund, which is also part of Qatar Foundation, prior to that, education was almost always revolving around teaching. So the, the concept of having research-intensive universities was not there. But with the inception of Education City, and uh, the creation of QNRF, um, uh, Qatar National Research Fund, even Qatar University, the, the national main university, has transformed to become a research-intensive university. Now they're running um, grants that you know, amount to like tens of millions of, of, of dollars, which is, which is excellent. Um, so I think that sort of the positives, if you wish, outweigh any other negatives that could have been, uh, could, could have occurred. So in the, uh, in the model you shared about education, not the pedagogical model, but the free market model, you shared that when you introduce a profit element, there's almost inevitably going to be some gaming or some fudging going on. But couldn't that also apply to the very concept of, of even um, instructing a, a consultant in the first place, because that's a profit element to that as well. So if you're tendering the contract for, for consultancy, wouldn't that in itself create those sort of mechanisms? Yeah. And the second part of that is, even if you are tendering those contracts to um, consultants, who is the person or what body is qualified to assess what the conclusion or the analysis of that report 
That's a good and difficult question, especially the second one. Um, in terms of the first question about the rational choice model, uh, gaming the system is a possibility. Uh, it could happen, it could not happen. This is one thing. The other thing, it's not exactly related to the fact that the model is about profit-making. It has to do with the fact that the model is, uh, they call it, test-based model. So the idea of measuring measuring success, measuring. So um, just to draw a distinction there. Um, gaming the system, of course, can happen in, in any like sort of sector, in any field, and you cannot prevent it. When it comes to consultancies, of course it could happen. So consultants are always, or most of the time, they're invited to um, companies and institutions uh, with the idea, with the rationale that they are not biased, they're objective, they have no interest. You know, they're not part of this bureaucracy, they're not part of the disputes in this institution. Um, so under that assumption, they're being invited. That's why the question you're asking is very important. Well, what if their interest is to retain their contract, to renew their contract? This is a very valid question. And that's why it's very important that the clients are trained not only to hear the consultant's assessment of their own work, but also to assess the assessors, if you wish. No, uh, in 2002, a Supreme Education Council was founded, yes. uh, and it worked in parallel to... Yes. Exactly, yes. And in 2013? Uh, in 2013, sorry, I thought 2003. No, no. Uh, yes, 2000, yeah, actually it was dismantled, um, and, the and the Ministry of Education came back. So before that, Ministry of Education was dismantled, actually. But then what happened is that Ministry of Education came back, and replaced the Supreme Education Council. So there's no any more Supreme no. Education Council? No Supreme Councils at all. But yeah. I think maybe I, because I'm writing about Qatar, and I'm comparing Qatar and Bahrain and Kuwait as well, but still when I'm writing and, uh, about Qatar, still I found the institutions of the, uh, uh, the Education uh, Council, they are under the Ministry of Education. So what's happened for these institutions? Yes. Exactly. No, the, they are yeah. Or no, yeah. What happened exactly is that um, they, the Minister of Education took over all the institutions. So, all the employees, all the institutions, the building itself, everything, the document, everything, is now or now belongs to uh, belong to uh, the Minister of Education. Yes. Adam.
on the point of uh, you mentioned, um, uh, evaluation. So one of the issues I think we have as a problem in the region is uh, an inability of fascination you mentioned with management consultants, which means that we don't think we have the performance management capacity. So what happens then, you spend more money by hiring another consultancy firm that serves as a sort of uh, uh, defense mechanism or, or some sort of um, uh, balancing measure, which, uh, which doesn't necessarily have positive outcomes because there's a discussion that goes on and so on and so on. The, there was one other, um, there's one other thing on evaluation. There is an introduction of commission on yields of performance and so on and so on. But one of the issues with that is the ideas might be great, but the implementation, which is from the originator to the terminology, um, the shortcomings from that side. So this is something that we need to, to, to consider as well. Okay, so I want to go back to your first answer. You said that you don't believe that there exists a gap between the labor, uh, the labor market needs and the graduates. I, I want to just point out another gap that I believe exists and I want your opinion on it. Um, we see in world competitiveness reports or the global competitiveness report by uh, the World Economic Forum, which is produced each year, that Qatar ranks very high um, in terms of education quality uh, for elementary schools and for secondary schools. But at the same time, if we look at other reports, especially the ones that focus on assessment and on exams, we see that compared to other countries in the region, Qatari students score very poorly. Um, and I believe there exists a, a gap between uh, the ranking for the World Economic Forum and those um, other reports. And at the same time, I want to point out to the negative perceptions that people in Qatar generally have towards the education system, especially, um, not talking about university education, but especially in schools. Um, and I'm thinking here of parents and of students themselves. And I want also to, uh, to learn your opinion on why there is a gap between people's perception of education and the ranking that Qatar has in the World Economic Forum. And at the same time, why, why there is um, also a chasm between uh, Qatar's ranking in this specific report and the scores of Qatari students and other reports. That's a very good point. And I think that assessment and evaluation should be holistic um, in the sense that, yes, we, we should look at the international um, indicators uh, and assessments and so on and so forth. But we always need to complement that uh, with our own assessments, both quantitative and, and qualitative. This is very important. And one of the indicators uh, you, you mentioned, uh, satisfaction, I, I believe, and the societal satisfaction, uh, satisfaction or parental satisfaction. This is very important as well. So to, to have a more of a holistic uh, uh, picture and, and sort of system to, to assess your education is very important. Don't rely on the international indicators only uh, because if you know the actual process of collecting the data, of measuring, of, and so on and so forth, uh, you'd be surprised. Um, this is on the one hand. Here I should maybe refer to uh, one entity in Qatar that does uh, very good studies on, on education, that is SESRI, um, um, 
that stands for Social and Economic uh, Surveys uh, Research Institute. Uh, Research Institute, yeah. exactly. It's part of Qatar University. Um, so according to their uh, stats, um, the stats actually show that parents' uh, satisfaction uh, increased in Qatar, so uh, not as it used to be, which is good. Uh, so I would personally rely on their studies more than the international uh, studies, um, in addition to many, many other uh, indicators. The, the point is, and, and this is one good thing that happened in the education reform, is that there was always a space and a window for policy feedback. This is very important, policy feedback. Uh, and, and the Ministry of Education, Supreme Education Council, have been, by the way, very responsive to, to people's needs and uh, to the contrary of what many people like, like to say. Many people like to complain a lot, um, and they have a right to do so. But I think they've been, if you look at the uh, sequence of, of uh, uh, sort of policy revisions, uh, they, they used to happen almost every year in response to certain parental uh, uh, demands. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered the question, but uh, do, do you actually study this topic? Are you? It's yeah. But, but do look up Cesri's uh, studies on that. They're they're very good. Does that one? What do you think the future of policy borrowing is in Qatar and the region? And um, why do you think there is also a lack of belief in the local talent? Because you know, from personal experience, um, we end up being hired by the consultants that have been hired by the government, but we don't get hired by the government directly because they think we don't know what we're doing, but we end up doing all of the work. And uh, I shared my personal experience with you. So why do you think there is this lack of belief in the local talent when it comes to consultancy, and what is the future of policy borrowing in the region? Okay, so uh, I think that this has to do, your second question, has, has to do with the power relation between the client and the consultant. So it has to do with sort of the uh, perceptions we have about um, knowledge production in our region, knowledge production elsewhere. Um, so there is this sense that, okay, if I'm going to hire a consultant, uh, then this consultant should bring me experience that I don't have locally. This is the rationale most of the time. Although there is another, like an opposite trend. Uh, many of the consultancies would tell you, you know what, we need to cater our solutions for your needs. That's why we're getting people from the region. So you actually see both, both trends. Uh, on the one hand, we'd like to hire you know, a consultancy, uh, one of the top five, let's say. Um, but then this consultancy itself would subcontract many of the services to local consultants. Uh, so again, I guess this is the paradox uh, we have to live with. Um, the, the other point about the future, it's, it's very difficult to speculate. I mean, the, again, policy borrowing is on the rise uh, according to statistics, uh, the amount of money the GCC is spending is increasing. It's not decreasing. And increasing by percentages like 13% and 15% every year. So, so I, I, I see it on the rise, to be honest. 
I could be wrong, that's just my impression, but some thoughts. True. Uh, I'm sorry to say you're wrong. <laughs> Simply because because uh, yeah no no not all of it I, I was, uh, so, <laughs> I might be wrong as well so that's fine um, we need to make the basic distinction between consultants and bureaucrats so when I talk about so because when you said three hundred thousand Qataris well I was I was talking about consultants I was not talking about uh, expats working in Qatar so so that that's why I thought. Uh, you rightly put it uh, saying that your question is unfair. I think it's unfair in that sense. So my comment is not about expats. It's about consultants, whether those are expats, Qataris, Arabs or not. Um, the other point uh, I think I should um, clarify here is that according to statistics, um, Qatar is actually spending more money than the rest of uh, than other GCC countries with the exception of, of Saudi Arabia on consultancies and on consulting uh, contracts so it, it is very much open to to consultants the only difference i think i think the perception we have about the UAE is that, is that many of the consultancies are based there that's why we have this sense that they use consultants more but the same consultants are being used by Bahrain by Qatar by Saudi Arabia by Kuwait and so on and so forth so um. Uh, we only have a few minutes, so I'll just take take all the remaining ones here. Instead of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Thank you very much. I would like to start uh, with expressing my condolences to all my Qataris, uh, Qatari fellows, the Qatari friends, because yesterday in London, we, we, we Qataris lost uh, an amazing person who contributed to, to education in Qatar, Ms. Latif uh, Al-Swaylin. She was uh, one of the first six... Uh, uh, school principals in Qatar, and she was the director of education uh, in the Ministry of Education. Um, but when I see the amount of Qatari students and the amount of uh, the, the the hope they have and the, the work that they're doing in different fields, as I can notice, I'm very optimistic. I think that the first generation did an excellent uh, job, and I'm very um, proud to see Lulu here. Uh, a day after announced this, speaking about education, a day after uh, one of the great uh, principals in Qatar uh, died here in, in, in London. Um, my question to you, Lulu, why do you think usually the consulting company will, will perform this way, which is not really satisfying if I uh, in social sciences in general, but when we compare their performance in LNG sector and oil sector and in, in economy in general, it's extremely successful and very satisfying. So, what's wrong with those consultants who offer their recommendations in the social for the for, for social causes or for for, for something non-economic uh, um, causes? But when it comes to economy in general, especially I'm talking about LNG and, uh, and oil sector or energy sector in general, it's extremely satisfying, extremely successful. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and get the remaining questions. Uh, Adel, yes. between government policy and consultants. So I have many friends who work in 
some of the energy companies across the region. I'll use South Bobby as an example. So Admiral, for example, um, are naturalized, nationalizing and organizing some of the positions, but then they're paying the people who have left as consultants on higher salaries without job security. So what does this do? It drains the, the, on the fiscal side, same outcome, except you've ticked a box. So these are some of the issues we have to grapple with. And I think on comfort, governments have to be a little bit more uh, um, brash in, in the way you operation, operationalize and institutionalize. And in fact, for Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia, you've seen a whole unit dedicated to uh, consultants. Um, that doesn't include SOEs, but on the, on the ministry side. But um, my question is, I was hoping you could say a little bit on, on culture. You've seemed, correct me if I'm wrong, to discount it a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether I agree with that. Um, a little bit on the linguistic side, on the tacit knowledge side, on insurance. You want to have an incredible Harvard grad who's working for, I don't know, McKinsey in Dubai or Booz before or Strategy M. They take the uh, first class morning flight from Dubai to Riyadh and they don't leave uh, the Four Seasons or the Wimnafar basically. So they don't really know the context or the region or the culture. So that's where this uh, policy borrowing and copying place without context. Um, sometimes from. Absolutely. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll answer. I think my answer might sort of embark on, on both both questions. Um, consultants are more than happy most of the time to customize their solutions. They're more than happy to to be uh, culturally sensitive. Um, that's why I'm not so worried about that point. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I, I did mention that institutional culture is very important. But my point was that sometimes we reduce the, the, the question of culture to a question of identity that is of a very ritual, ritualistic uh, nature in the sense that do we shake hands or not? What do we call this? Do we call it an Arabic name or an English name? All of these points are very important. But this is not the substantive part. And we should be concerned more with the substance. Um, and this gets me to Hamid's uh, point. Um, I think that the reason why consultants are doing very well, let's say in the oil and gas sector, is that because the oil and gas sector itself is very structured, they know exactly what they want, the consultant itself fits within a big machine. So he's not running the, the entire thing. Whereas in social sciences, we have two issues. Social sciences are, are much more sophisticated and, and, and complex, as you can imagine. Um, and it's not as structured, like the sector of education, the sector of family policies, and so on and so forth. They're not as structured. And that's why the consultants end up with more authority than they should have and with less guidance as well. Let us be fair as well. I mean, they need guidance from the clients. Um, so I think complexity of policy of, of social sciences is one thing and the um, sort of the institutional nature of, of both of the different sectors. LNG is definitely much more, you know, I'm a big fan of, of LNG in general. They're very structured. I think there's much to learn from that sector in the other sectors. Great, fantastic. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but thank you so much. <laughs>